The Bible is a book full of unsolved mysteries. Are you looking to finally make sense of it all? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Carl Sagan once said, valid criticism does you a favor. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts by way of email, messaging us at ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So, Jonathan, what's on target for today? Well, Rick, our question is, does science prove intelligent design? And our theme text is found in Psalms chapter 19, verse 4. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. All right, so the question, does science prove intelligent design? Atheists will tell you that there is no scientific proof of God, nor can there be. They have a materialistic view of the universe that, by definition, excludes God. Though this philosophy is pervasive in the world today, there is much evidence that reveals a great deal of willing ignorance in that belief. Yeah, that's what we said, willing ignorance in that belief. Is science the only source of truth? Does science really validate godlessness? Folks, coming up in today's podcast, the average person believes in science, and rightfully so. What the average person doesn't know is where many who proclaim a belief in science make assumptions that are, well, at the very least, illogical and credulity-based. In our first two segments, we're going to talk about the biggest scientific thing we can think of, the universe, and see what startling facts show us about its growth, design, and origin. Do you know that all of the world around us is supposed to have happened by mere chance? This, again, is a core belief of those who would deny intelligent design. In segments three and four, we're going to examine biology, the things that are far too small to see, but far too complex and astounding to ignore. And I got to tell you, this is absolutely mind-blowing. Many believe that humankind is just another animal that evolved into being. In our final segment, we're going to examine some of the scientific evidence that shows us that we are not like the rest of the animals, but truly higher and truly privileged. You don't want to miss a minute of this. The objective of our podcast this evening is to review a number of scientific ideas and questions that demonstrate the other side of the argument, namely, that a super intelligent creator is behind the existing of this universe and all life. Okay, so Jonathan, to tackle a subject like this, um, you're not the science guy, are you? I am not. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's ask the question, am I the science guy? Are you? 
No, <laughs> I'm not. So we had to bring in our own favorite science person to help us out with this. We've got back with us uh, David Stein uh, joining us again after several years. David, hello. How are you? Hello, Rick. Hello, Jonathan. So nice to see both of you again. And I do see you on the monitor here, Jonathan. That's yes. right. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So, David, you have been with us in the past. Most recently is that it's almost been three years. So yeah. for those of our audience who don't know who you are, just give us a little background of who you are and uh, what you're doing here. Well, I uh, am here because of uh, my interest in the Bible. Uh, the Bible, of course, is the most important book that we have in our uh, spiritual lives. Uh, I am an elder in the Allentown Bible Students in Allentown, Pennsylvania. As far as science is concerned, I have had a love and interest in science all my life. Now, let me be very plain. I am not a scientist. I am, however, an engineer. Okay. And in my engineering education, we had a lot of science that was a necessary part of that, engineering science and mathematics and whatnot. And so the uh, technology part and the information part of science uh, is part of my, of my background as well. Um, you had asked earlier about my religious background. I was actually raised a Catholic. Um, I spent uh, several years in Jehovah's Witnesses and felt that there wasn't a real good fidelity to the scriptures there and then moved on to uh, the Associated Bible Student Movement, a, a non-sectarian group of uh, Bible students that exists around the globe. And uh, I have been very, very blessed by my association uh, within that group. I like the non-denominational aspect of it, that we can share our thoughts and the results of our studies and not feel compelled to accept uh, the ideas of some group or some dogma, but draw our own conclusions based upon what the Bible teaches. All right, you said a mouthful, and uh, and David, we, we we share that same enthusiasm with you. No, I've known you for a long, long, long time, and it has been a long time. Yeah, way back when we were a lot younger, we used to play basketball together. That's right, that's right. In fact, it goes back to the, the late seventies. Yeah, so. okay, let's stop there. Okay. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so David is with us, uh, and look, folks, today. This is going to be a very different Christian Questions, because typically with Christian Questions, we have a very clear Bible-based conversation throughout our podcast to develop our points and reasoning and so forth, build foundations and so forth. Today, we're not going to be relying on Scripture. And you say, well, what, what are you doing? Well, because we're talking about science and we, because we're talking about intelligent design, what we wanted to do is give you a podcast that would be readily usable with someone who does not believe in the Bible because we want to look at science and intelligence in terms of design to see if, in fact, they do mix. So we're going to quote maybe one or two scriptures throughout the entire podcast, and we're going to let science do the talking, and David is going to walk us through all of that. So, folks... As you listen, and I promise you, if you stay with us, you're going to be overawed by so many things you're going to say, I wish so-and-so was listening to this. This is a great podcast to give them to say, hey, let me get your point of view on what these guys are talking about. So, David, let's get started. Uh, we, we've already alluded to the idea that we wanted to start our scientific exploration, exploration with the biggest thing we could find, and that's the universe. Okay, so let's get started right there. Does the existence of our universe argue for or against a creator? Well, we can apply some scientific rationale and logic to answering this question. And using some logic, we can say, we can make a statement. The universe is either finite or infinite. No one could scientifically debate that. 
one or the other is true. Okay. If it's infinite, it doesn't require a creator. It's always been here, so there's no need to have a creator. And this was the view of many in the ancient world. However, current scientific thinking, in fact, the current scientific thinking for many decades now, is that it had a beginning. Probably most of the listeners have heard of the Big Bang Theory. And you're not talking about the television show. No, that's right. (laughs) Well, the Big Bang Theory is the current thinking. So if the universe had a beginning, the inescapable conclusion is that the cause of of its existence had to be something outside the universe. Now, this is a simple deductive logic based upon the principle of cause, uh, cause and effect. So let's restate our conclusion. If the universe is finite, it had a beginning and would require something beyond and outside of the universe to create it. That's a scientific fact. Okay, so something beyond and outside of the universe to create it. And I I think we're going to want to come back to that point a little bit later, David. So the idea is the universe is finite. Science says that. That's not David saying that. That's science. That's right. If you read any book on on, uh, cosmology, you will find that conclusion there. Okay, so now let's go to the cause. You're saying there's got to be an external cause for this finite universe to begin. What can we scientifically deduce or understand about this particular cause? Well, let's think about the universe itself. When we say the universe, what do we mean? Well, we're talking about the space in which all of the stars and galaxies and other material within the universe exist. But we're also talking about the time within the universe. Cosmologists and physicists call this space-time because Einstein showed in his relativity equations that space and time were inextricably linked by these equations. Therefore, outside of the universe would be outside of space and time. So whatever the cause would be, it has to be spaceless, immaterial, and timeless. It would also need to possess incredible power. Because if we remember the idea of the Big Bang, everything started from this primordially, uh, primordial uh, point of mass and energy that exploded, not explosions in the sense that we say them today, but exploded and to create everything that we had. So there would be incredible power. So does a cause which is timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and of immense power sound like any concepts we have now? Yeah, it sounds like... Well, I'm going to say it. It sounds like God to me. It does sound like God, doesn't it? (laughs) And you see, up to this point, we have used only what is based upon scientific fact and logic. We haven't gone outside of that. Okay, Jonathan, I think our one scripture. Let's, Let's do that right now. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Okay. And, and that's exactly what you're saying. What is seen is made out of, the, out of things which are outside of Correct. what we see and understand. Yeah, and this is, this is objective and it's rationale. It's the atheists that have a more difficult burden of proof than theists do. Up to this point, you can see we have stayed way within the, the, the boundaries of science in drawing the conclusion that we have. And it's a very simple conclusion that you've made, and this is just, just, just scratching the surface. Mm-hmm. surface. Okay, so um, you know what? Let, let's move on to just a couple of things that have been written about uh, this whole idea of the universe and where it come from, comes from. So, uh, Jonathan, we're just going to take quotes from just a, a couple of writers. The first is going to be Luke Barnes. He's a non-creationist astrophysicist 
who is a postdoctoral researcher at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy, University of Sydney, Australia. Rick, can I interrupt before we read that? We, we kind of should. Jonathan, you see this? He's interrupting me. Did you notice that? Hey, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to set a, a, a foundation for what these uh, quotes that we're going to take uh, say. Okay. Um, atheists have come up with the idea that it's possible to have something from nothing. Now, this is one of the two answers that they have to the conclusion that we just draw, that the first cause was outside of the universe. And there was a scientist by the name of Dr. Lawrence Krauss who wrote a book in 2012 called A Universe for Nothing, uh, From Nothing. And in it, he argues that, well, everything came about from quantum fluctuations. Now, what's a quantum fluctuation? I was going to ask you that, so I'm glad you asked yourself. I was going to say, it sounds like something maybe a doctor could uh, could remove. I don't know. <laughs> but basically, he's arguing that you get something from nothing, and he wrote a whole book in it. So the, the quotes that we're going to look at here are rebuttals from other scientists. And this is important. This is not just Dave Stein saying that, that Lawrence Krauss is all wet. I'll say that. He is all wet. But there are other scientists that say that his philosophy does not hold water. Okay, so you're going to the source of other scientists to say this something from nothing, eh, not so much. Exactly. Okay, all right, let's go to Luke Barnes. Uh, Jonathan, go ahead, just a very short quote. This is nonsense. The word nothing is often used loosely. I have nothing in my hand. There's nothing in the fridge, etc. But the proper definition of nothing is not anything. Nothing is not a type of something not a kind of thing. It is the absence of anything. So, David, uh, this qu these quantum fluctuations, he's kind of calling nothing, but uh, Luke Barnes is saying, well, wait, you can't do that. Yeah, he says quantum fluctuation is something, so that, that, that invalidates Krauss's whole argument. Again, notice that this is from uh, Luke Barnes, who is a non-creationist astrophysicist who's saying this, who's taking Krauss to task for what he writes. Okay. All right, Jonathan, next quote again. Very, very short quotes from those who are in the scientific world. Edward Fesser, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Pasadena City College. The spate of bad books on philosophy and religion by prominent scientists is notable not only for the sophomoric philosophical and theological errors they contain, but also for their sheer representativeness. Krauss fallaciously account of how something can come from nothing, though presented as a great breakthrough and praised as such by Dawkins, is this afterward is largely a rehash of ideas. Okay, so David, translate that. Well, what uh, Dr. Fieser is saying here is that this is just another one in a long string of bad books on philosophy. Uh, Krauss is arguing, not scientifically. I mean, it, what's the scientific basis for saying something comes from nothing? It's not intuitive, and there is no scientific evidence for it. Okay, okay, so, so pa pause right there. So really what you're saying is the idea of something coming from nothing, which a lot of those who, who um, take an atheistic perspective on the origin of the universe, you're saying has no scientific basis. Not, exactly. we're, not, we're, we're not talking philosophical, we're talking scientific. Yes, it's not, not scientifically based at all. Therefore, it has to become just a philosophical perspective that they are trying to espouse. Okay, and Jonathan, let's go down to one more quote from David Albert. He's a professor of philosophy, director of MA program at Columbia. He has a doctorate in theoretical physics, uh, and he's reviewing Krauss's book as well. 
Where, for starters, are the laws of quantum mechanics themselves supposed to have come from? Krauss is more or less upfront, as it turns out, about not having a clue about that. He acknowledges, albeit in a parenthesis, and just a few pages before the end of the book, that everything he has been talking about simply takes the basic principles of quantum mechanics for granted. David? Well, this is interesting because what uh, Dr. Albert is pointing out here is that the laws are something. The laws are not nothing. And maybe Krauss is, is assuming that the laws still exist there and then account for the quantum fluctuations. But he says this is ridiculous. If there's nothing, then there's no laws of quantum mechanics. Okay. There's no quantum mechanics. There's no quantum fluctuations. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And that's where his whole argument falls flat. Okay. All right. So, so we want to conclude this, uh, th 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 this portion, David. We've, we've breezed through these very, very quickly. Now, the idea that you're saying is that the universe has to have come from something. And those who have proposed that it comes from nothing... It's really a philosophical approach and not a scientific approach. Correct. So what's the conclusion then on the universe from nothing argument as, as you see it? Well, as we've seen, on the basis of a well-constructed rebuttals from other scientists in the field of physics and philosophy, we can conclude that it is not scientific to assert something comes from nothing. That's pure philosophy. And that leaves us with the only conclusion that there was a first cause. Okay, a conclusion that there was a first cause. We're going to have to develop that and get into that a little bit more. But this simple point of view uh, of there being a first cause ends up being a powerful foundation for truth. So the universe had a beginning. Did it have a destiny or was its existence a result of random activity? We're podcasting live every Monday night from 8 to 9.30. You can talk to us direct through our chat at ChristianQuestions.com. We also welcome your comments or questions any day of the week. Just hit the Contact Us button. We're now out of the starting gate. Let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. While establishing a starting point is important, understanding the why behind what happened next really puts the big universal picture in perspective. As we move through this next segment, let's pay close attention to facts while leaving our feelings and preferences, and let me add philosophies, behind. Because, folks, this is what this particular podcast is about. Let's look at the science, and let's try to be as thoroughly objective as possible. And the question at hand is, does science prove intelligent design, forget the word God, as much as we don't like to do that here, but let's forget the word God, let's forget religion for now. Does science prove intelligent design? So, getting back to David Stein, our guest with us today, the next piece of scientific evidence we want to consider is the apparent design of the universe, because David, we're saying the universe was designed, so let's, let's go with that. Yeah, we, we included the word apparent uh, in uh, our statement here because we want to stay on a scientific uh, foundation. In science, the way that science moves forward, and it uses very sound principles that have been useful for centuries, is that you look at evidence, you reason on that evidence, you can come up with an idea that explains that evidence, and that's where science comes from. Now, earlier on, uh, Jonathan asked the question, does the universe have a destiny? Well, if the universe did have a destiny, that means that it had to be created with certain 
uh, constants that allowed the universe to develop in a way that would support life in the universe. And we're going to assert here, this is not scientific, but we're going to assert that the universe was created for man. If that assertion is true, what's the scientific evidence to back it up? Well, we start out with the so-called physical constants. Okay, physical constants. Define, define what a physical constant is in relation to the universe. Well, a physical constant, and sometimes it's called a fundamental physical constant or universal constant, is a physical quantity that is generally believed to be both universal in nature and have a constant value in time. Okay, go ahead, I'm sorry. Okay, it's contrasted with a mathematical constant that has a fixed numerical value, but it isn't involved in any physical measure. Oh, okay, you need to give us an example because you're about to lose me. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, here's one that I think most everyone can understand. The speed of light. Um, very fast. It's very fast, 186,000 miles per second. As we understand it, the speed of light does not change anywhere in the universe, no matter where you are, it's a constant. By the way, I will say the caveat that it does change when it, it's not going through a vacuum. That's the speed of light in a vacuum. When it goes through air or water, it, it does change a little bit there because the medium slows it down. But in a vacuum where there is nothing interfering with it, it is the same everywhere in the universe. That's an example of a constant. Okay, so you're saying that um, you, when you start with the apparent design, you have to have physical constants to say, okay, these things are always the same, and that gives you sort of building blocks? Is that, is that where you're going? Well, that's right. The, the physical constants specify the way the universe is built, the laws under which it's built. We might call the speed of light the law of the speed of light. Light travels that fast, it's necessary for the universe to operate and to be explained the way it is. Okay, uh, just another, another quick example. Speed of light is good, something else. Well, here's another example. We're going to take everybody back to maybe high school science. You remember that all of the atoms in the universe are made of three uh, particles, a proton, neutron, and electron. Mm -hmm. Protons have a positive charge, electrons have a negative charge. When we build a battery, uh, we separate those charges out on one side or the other to produce a charge, to produce electricity. Now, if the universe did not have an equal number of protons and electrons, that would produce an electrical charge. And that electrical charge would interfere with the universe's developing galaxies, star, planet formation. And the precision with which uh, these two uh, objects exist in the universe is 1 in 10 to the 37th. That is to say that it's the same number to that precise uh, figure. Okay, so when you say 1 to the 10, so, so you're saying the, the ratio of protons to electrons, so there's one proton to 10 to the 37th electrons? No, what I'm saying is that the difference in number of protons and electrons is 1 unit to 10 to the 37th. For example, let's say so it's that tiny. Yeah. Let's say we, okay, we had okay, 10 okay. protons and 11 neutrons. So who counted these? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. They're calculated by understanding how much mass is in the universe. Okay, it's every visible mass okay. that they're able to right, see. Okay, go ahead. But the idea here is that if they were not equal, there would be a charge in the universe, either a negative or a positive charge, and that would interfere with everything that came about afterward. The whole development of the universe would be either stopped or thwarted. It wouldn't allow the creation of galaxies, of stars, and planets. So, so you mean to tell me that if you didn't have an equal number, 
in the entire universe, things would fall apart. They there would be chaos. That's right. That's right. Things would not develop. Uh, that would it would not result in a universe habitable for human life. And we're not talking just a few little protons and electrons. You are talking about a number that's incomprehensible. Oh yeah, the, the, the numbers is is huge. But let me give you an example of how precise this is. Okay. Um, if you cover the entire North American continent in dimes, all the way up to the moon. That's a lot of dimes. Yeah. Now, by the way, how many dimes is that? In comparison, the money to pay the U.S. federal debt would cover one square mile less than two feet deep with dimes. <laughs> we need that uh, square mile, incidentally. That's <laughs> so, another conversation. <laughs> there are. A moon is 230,000 miles away. So right. here you have a column of dimes the size of the North American continent all the way up to the moon. Okay, wait, wait, wait. One column of a column of dimes the size of Texas. The size of the United the North American continent. Oh, size of the North American Mexico, continent. United okay, States, okay, Canada. okay. The whole yep. continent. The whole continent that goes all the way to the to the moon. To the moon. Right. That okay. That's an incomprehensible number of dimes. It's a big number. Yes, it is. Right. Now, take that number okay. and next pile dimes from here to the moon on a billion other continents the same size as North America. Oh, you got to be kidding. <laughs> now paint one dime red in that mix. In, in all of the billion continents of North America, with the 230,000 mile high pile of dimes to the moon, you have one red dime. Yeah. The, if, if we ask Jonathan to go find that dime, the odds that he will pick the red dime in that are 1 to 10 to the 37th. Jonathan, good luck, pal. <laughs> but here's what that means now. That wow. means that if you had a, an imbalance of protons and electrons equal to that one dime, the universe could not exist. As we know it, that's amazing. So, so if it was, if it's off by that tiny, tiny, minuscule amount, it couldn't exist. That's right. Okay, you know, I, I know you can't hear me nodding my head in disbelief, but it's that's what I'm doing. I should nod it louder or something. But so that gives you a sense of there is a a tremendous, tremendous level of of clarity in what's there. Because the, the ingredients are exact and utterly, completely precise. Yes. And, and Rick, that is just one of about 60 different constants that the scientists have found, physicists have found, that have precisions on that order or even more precise. More precise than that? Yes. Than the one billion North American continents with a pile of dimes 230,000 miles high? Indeed. Wow. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Okay. So that gives you a sense of order. Order gives you a sense of intelligence. I'm just saying. Now, I'm not the scientist guy, but um, let, let's get into a few other things, David. Okay. Uh, other quick examples. You, we were talking earlier, and you said there are four fundamental forces known in the universe. Let's very quickly go through what are these four fundamental forces. Okay, number one is what, they, what scientists call the strong nuclear force. This is the force that binds protons and neutrons together in the nucleus of an atom. Uh, by the way, this is also the force that's released when you blow up an atomic bomb. Just wow. so you understand, when you split an atom, you are releasing this force. If it were weaker by one part in 10,000 billion, 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 by the way, that's 10 to the 40th. It's a bigger number than what we just talked about. No elements except hydrogen could exist. Okay, okay. So if it were weaker by 1 in 10 to the 40th power, so it's 10 with 40 zeros. Correct, correct. Then no elements except hydrogen could exist. Right. Okay. And if it were stronger 
you would have only heavy elements. There'd be no hydrogen and therefore no, no life. So this strong nuclear force, again, has to be utterly incomprehensibly precise. Mm -hmm. Okay, what's the flip side of that? Well, let's go to another force, the weak nuclear force. This, this is opposite weak. Go ahead. Yeah, this is the force that regulates the rate of radioactive decay. In other words, if you have a radioactive atom, it spontaneously puts out a neutron, just expels a neutron, and the weak force is responsible. Well, I knew that, for that, Jonathan. You knew that, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. If the, if the weak nuclear force were weaker than it is, there'd be no heavier elements, no supernovas. If it were stronger, there'd be not enough heavier elements, and then life's chemistry would not be possible. Okay, no supernovas. So what are we missing? I mean, okay, no supernovas. I never saw any, so it's like I'm not missing anything. Well, that's a great question. Uh, Rick, I'm going to tell you something. You are made of star stuff. <sighs> you know, my wife tells me that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all of the elements on this Earth that are heavier than hydrogen were made in a supernova. In other words, a star starts to, in its life cycle, starts to produce these heavier elements in its core. Eventually, that star becomes unbalanced, and it explodes in a supernova and spreads these heavier elements, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, throughout the cosmos. So we, we literally have elements of supernovas in us. Absolutely. That is amazing. Literally. So then, if this weak nuclear force did not exist in its exact, exact, exact uh, proportion, then there would have been no supernovas. Therefore, there would have been no elements of creation and therefore no humanity. Correct. Exactly right. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. Our, our third one is the gravitational force. Everybody knows what gravity is. Right. You throw a stone in the air, it falls down. Uh, if it were weaker there would be no fusion and no heavier elements. Remember, I described earlier that in the stages of the development of a star, it starts to produce heavier elements, and that's because gravity is pressing these hydrogen atoms together and causing them to fuse into heavier elements. Okay. Uh, if it were stronger, stars would burn up too fast, and they wouldn't produce these. And so here we have the same type of thing. We would not have the elements necessary for life. So again, the gravitational force, and when we look at, we're, we're especially, specifically looking at Earth at this point, I presume, mm -hmm. you know, you're looking at that, it's got to be exactly precise for life to be able to exist as it does. That's right. See, and That's I thought right. if the gravitational force were less, I could just jump higher. But no, it's it's much bigger than that. You have to go to the moon to do that. Okay, okay, all right. <laughs> he always wanted to dunk a basketball. I did, never got even close. All right, what's the fourth one? The fourth one is the electromagnetic force, and we already made mention of this. Uh, protons have a positive charge, mm -hmm. electrons have a, a negative charge. If the electromagnetic force between protons and neutrons, and that produces electromagnetic uh, repulsion and attraction between molecules, if it were weaker then you wouldn't be able to make the chemical bonds necessary for life. If it were stronger, the heavier elements would be unstable, and they would just break down, and so you couldn't have any life. Again, we already mentioned that the, the balance of electrons to protons is 1 to 10 to the 37th, but here is another fundamental source or force of nature that is extremely precise, and if it's not precise... Now, let me just take footnote that before we go further. Why are we talking about this? Does this prove that God exists? What it proves is that we live in a universe which is uniquely fit for human life. That if it wasn't this way, in a very, very, very improbable way, we could not have life. Now, what do we conclude by that? Is this probable? Is this a, just a, some coming about by chance? 
No, we use logic at this point. We use we look at the scientific facts and we say, gosh, it certainly seems like the universe was made for, for life. So what you're saying is all of these ratios between the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force and the gravitational force and electromagnetic force, there is so much that has to be so incredibly exact beyond anything we can imagine that life just could not exist if any one of those things were off. Absolutely correct. And we only looked at four of them. There's about 60. You can Google it, the uh, physical constants on, the, on, the, on Google, and you'd be able to get a list of these themselves. Okay, good. That's a good, that's a good exercise. So, again, folks, the, the, the point here is these physical constants. Do we look at them and say, all by chance or all by design? Just ask the question at this point. Uh, we want to... You, you had in your notes to to talk about Fred Hoyle. Who is he's a British astrophysicist? Just a little bit about him and, and what he has to say, and then we want to move forward from there. Well, Fred Hoyle was a very well respected astrophysicist from Great Britain. Um, he was also a very well known and self proclaimed atheist. But when he began to see how precisely these physical constants were defined, and he was somebody that studied them and knew them, here's what he wrote. He said, a common sense interpretation, notice that, common mm -hmm. sense, of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics, as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers once calculated from the facts seems to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. And by the way, I don't know if this is an admission on the part of Fred Hoyle that there's a god or simply a superintelligence, a non-god superintelligence that created the, the universe. But nevertheless, he says that's almost an inescapable conclusion. And that's an important thought. And again, folks, it's a matter of science and logic here. We want to be just thoroughly, thoroughly logical. Okay, so David, just quickly on this one, what uh, are the atheists saying in re with regards to this fine-tuning? I've heard something about a multiverse theory. Well, atheists are, uh, to use the old expression, up the creek on this one, because the only explanation they can come up with is, since the probabilities are so large, almost infinitely large, they say, well, you know, there must be an infinite number of universes and we just happen to live in the one universe that has all of these constants just dialed to the right place in order to make life. That's their answer. Now, let me ask you, does that sound scientific? No. That sounds philosophical, dude. Yeah, and, and, and honestly, you know, when you look at it from a logical standpoint, it sounds silly. Yeah, yeah. Be because if this universe has so much complexity to it, to have an infinite number of universes, you're multiplying the complexity uh, astronomically. Yeah, you can see that this response, this explanation, is a way to explain away the physical constants. They already have a philosophy, there is no God, but this flies in the face of this, so they have to come up with something else. Again, let me say that for the multiverse theory, there is no science to validate this. Okay, all right. So, when debating uh, intelligent design, the only thing we desperately need to do is stay with the facts. The universe, in its massiveness, shows extraordinary design. What about the little tiny things in life? We're podcasting live every Monday night from 8 to 9.30. You can talk to us direct through our chat at ChristianQuestions.com. We also welcome your comments or questions any day of the week. Just hit the Contact Us button. We're now out of the starting gate. Let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. 
Having seen and appreciated both ends of the creative spectrum, now let's plant ourselves right in the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong segment here. <laughs> in, the, in the middle. What we find is no surprise for complexity or intelligent design. Um, we've seen the bigness of the universe, and now what we need to do is take a look at the smallness of the things that are around us. And the smallness that we're going to be looking at is so it's a universe unto itself that we just don't even understand exists. We're going to see here just as stunning uh, the, in, in the invisibility as the stars of heaven are in their bright power. That's what we're going to see. We're going to take a look now at biology. And boy, is this something that is unbelievable. So, David, let's take a look into biology. Um, you know, the big question. Okay, so how did life begin? Go. <laughs> Well, if you ask any honest scientist in biology, molecular biology, the answer would be, I don't know. They don't know. They're coming up with ideas, but as quickly as the ideas come up, they're, they're swatted down by other problems. Now, without, uh, without DNA, you can't have life. Now, let me go back and explain what DNA is. In the cells of our body, and indeed the cells of every living creature, there is a computer program. And I'm not being facetious when I say that. There is a set of instructions in the nucleus of every cell that describes how to build all of the necessities of life. And there are many necessities to be able to process food, to be able to breathe, to take energy, create energy, to build protein, to build structures. All of this is mediated by DNA. DNA, by the way, for those that want to know, means deoxyribonucleic acid. It's a long-chain molecule that has the instructions for keeping the cell alive. Now, regarding the DNA, here's, here's an interesting quote from Bill Gates in his book, The Road Ahead. He compared it to a computer program. He wrote, DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software ever created. You know, so from a scientific standpoint, we never observe life coming from non-living chemicals. Never, okay. ever. So all of the atheistic scientists are left with is somehow the right combinations came together to form the first living cell with the DNA to reproduce. When asked how this could happen, they all say, well, we don't know. But again, if you eliminate God, that's all you're left with. You have to yeah. say, well, somehow it happened. So the, the idea of we don't know ends up being a, an answer to the universe, and it ends up being an answer to the smallest, smallest, smallest of complex things that we know of. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so folks, here's what we're going to do. We want to go to several sound bites in this, in this segment to illustrate some of these things. So, David, we're going to go to these sound bites and just get your, your commentary on them uh, in, in terms of what they, uh, what they are telling us. Now, this first one is from Origin, Unlocking the Mystery of Life, and this is some commentary from Dr. Paul Nelson. Um, anything do you want to say before we start it? No. Okay, okay so let's, let's go to that first and then go from there. Amid this spectacular diversity, perhaps the greatest challenge ever faced by science echoes from every insect, redwood, and whale. How did the first life arise at a moment in time when there was no life of any kind? How did life on Earth begin? Where do we start? I mean, there are dozens of theories. And you find you've got this wild diversity of viewpoints, many of which are mutually contradictory. 
to even begin to try to crack the mystery, you have to supply assumptions about what must have happened in the distant past. There's no direct evidence because no one was there to witness the event and there's virtually no fossil record. What we never observe, ever, is non-living chemicals forming a cell. So in a sense, we have a field of research where the important action has already happened. Okay, so David, he's saying, you know, we've never seen non-living chemicals create something. That's right. And again, from a scientific standpoint, you try to take what evidence that you've seen of the way things work today and go back, or at least to push them back to see how it might explain how things in the, happened in the past. For example, uh, you might want to uh, look at a piece of soil around Vesuvius, and from that soil and the dust and ash there, you conclude that there was a, a volcano that erupted, and you might be able to determine how much of a, an eruption it was from that evidence. What Dr. Nelson is saying is that we only see life coming from life today, never life from non-life. So from a scientific standpoint, from a scientific method standpoint, there is nothing to explain how that could happen. Life from non-life. Yes. Okay. All right. All right. So let's go to a second one. Uh, again, Dr. Paul Nelson, or uh, Origin, Unlocking the Mystery of Life. Uh, and this he's going to introduce the philosophy of scientific materialism, which you are going to explain when he's done. <laughs> Most scientists believe that life started when energy sparked non-living matter in the planet's oceans, crust, and atmosphere to create building blocks for the first self-replicating cell. When you come to the origin of life, the rules, and this isn't the science itself, this is the underlying philosophy, the rules say to solve the problem, you can use matter and energy and natural law, natural regularities and chance processes, but that exhausts your toolkit. What you're not allowed to use fundamentally by the rules, so-called rules of science, is mind or intelligence. If you had to attach a name to this position, you can't do better than scientific materialism. A philosophy that tells you the only acceptable explanation has to be rendered in terms of matter and energy. And if you can't solve the problem using those tools, you're not allowed to change the rules. So from that perspective, how did life come to be via matter and energy alone? Now, try to solve the problem. All right, David, try to solve the problem. <laughs> Well, scientific materialism is this idea, and again, he expressed it as rules, arbitrary, I might add, uh, made by many atheistic scientists that say that you cannot invoke anything outside of scientific law to explain things. In other words, by this rule, God is automatically excluded. So intelligent design, therefore, is automatically that's, excluded. That's right. They because, say it's outside of the rules. So it's because intelligent design, you said earlier, is before and outside of the universe and therefore not bound by the rules of the universe. And because of that, because the universe did have a beginning, it can't be bound by the rules because it made the rules. That's one way okay. of putting it. Okay, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Now, in this particular case, uh, scientific materialism is like a straitjacket on trying to explain how life came about. Because as uh, Dr. Nelson pointed out, how are you going to do that? You don't have evolution yet, because evolution only works where you have reproduction. You haven't gotten that far yet. 
So all you've got is an environment, an unknown environment sometime in the past that somehow, against all odds, put together a cell uh, by, by chance. And, you know, and, and let me just interrupt. When you say against all odds, you really mean against all odds. You know, we take that phrase and we use it very, very, very casually. But when we talked about the numbers that we talked about in the first couple of segments, it, the odds are in... I, I, it's as close to impossible as you can get because the numbers are so enormous. Yeah. Well, what have scientists done to try to, to bark up that tree, as it were? Well, back in the 1950s, there was an experiment by Stanley Miller who said that if I could produce an environment like existed when life came about and produce some changes in that that gave rise to the fundamental elements of life, maybe I can prove that at least we can make the building blocks. So he took a glass flask and he filled it with gases that he assumed were at the, in the early atmosphere, like methane, ammonia, and hydrogen. And then he ran an electric current through it, like a little lightning bolt, mm -hmm. as it were. And he did that for several weeks. And then he evaluated what, what was left in that soup. And his results were like a milestone to the, the, the life-by-chance scientists because he found in there many compounds and many, one, one of the things that we call amino acids, the very basic building blocks of life, were, were actually produced. And so scientists right away, well, this is it. Now we've, we've got something. However, later scientific advances strong, strongly showed that Miller's assumptions about the atmosphere were incorrect. For example, the atmosphere consisted of neutral gases, including carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and water vapor, as well as free oxygen, which Miller assumed were not present. Thus, this new geological and geochemical evidence implied that the prebiotic atmosphere conditions were so hostile to life, not friendly to the production of any of these things, that they couldn't come into, to, into existence. So you're saying that once they figured out there were other things involved, there was the, 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 the possibility of chance went away. Well, that's right. I mean, they, they couldn't produce the materials that they thought they could produce. So that threw that theory out the window, and now they're trying to figure out another way that they could explain it. Okay. So now, um, you know, you had mentioned DNA earlier. Mm -hmm. And DNA, we, we always talk about as being the building block of life. So let's get a little bit into DNA. We're talking about microbiology. We're talking about things that are so incredibly small and yet so incredibly complex. Let's go to another soundbite, Origin, Unlocking the Mystery of Life. Um, this is Stephen Meyer on DNA uh, information. The existence of complex biological machines raises an obvious question. If natural selection wasn't the agent of their construction, then what was? The centerpiece of my investigation was an interview with philosopher of science, Dr. Stephen Meyer. Meyer, who holds a PhD from Cambridge University, brought me face-to-face -face with the most efficient information processing system in the universe. The DNA molecule and its language of life. The discovery of the information-bearing properties of DNA and RNA is a fundamental challenge to all materialistic theories of the origin of life. Neo-Darwinism and its associated theories of chemical evolution and the like will not be able to survive the biology of the information age, the biology of the 21st century. Okay, uh, several things. First of all, David, you know, he said DNA is the most efficient information processing system in the universe. I'm just struck by that. But then he's talking about um, uh, 
evolutionary theory essentially not being able to survive this. So, so let's break this down for us. Well, let's talk about information density of DNA. Uh, most everyone who used a thumb drive on a computer, yeah. you know, when the thumb drives first came out, uh, you had uh, maybe a, a 50K or 100K thumb drive. And then as technology advanced, you were able to get more and more. I've got a thumb drive at home that can have 256 gigs on it. Well, the most efficient uh, information encoding system is DNA. DNA is microscopic and exists in every part of our, shell, of our cells. The, the DNA strands just within one of your cells would, fee, would be enough uh, to uh, fill several, I'm going to say maybe 30 volumes of an encyclopedia. That's in, how much information is there. In, in one cell? In one cell. I mean, it's, it's huge amount. But one of, of, of uh, Dr. Meyer's points here is that DNA is information. Where do we get information from? Does information come about randomly by itself, by chance? The answer is no. In our experience, our, our unified experience in everyday life and in all of science, whenever we find information, it has come from an intelligent source. So if we look at DNA as information, how can we ever extrapolate that it just came about by random chance? Okay, and, and you know, here's the thing. The, the, the important thing is that all of science looks at DNA as information. They look at it as this incredible information source. As a matter of fact, they try to manipulate the information to create a different result. So what you're saying is information does not get logged and, and stored in such a, in a, an amazingly microscopic way just because something happened by accident. That's, that's right. And since DNA is made of, of uh, molecules that you can start to put a number on, you can come up with very accurate mathematical equations of what the probability is that any given strand of DNA uh, that could come together by chance could happen. And it's exceedingly small. And keep in mind that it's just not any combination of these components of DNA that will work. Every strand of DNA is highly specified, just like a computer program. I, I've worked with computer programs and developed them. If you have one instruction wrong, it oftentimes is enough to just right. kill the whole thing. Right. Well, that's true of DNA as well. If you just get one thing wrong, you're going to have problems with the operating system. So it is a masterpiece of efficiency in information processing. Absolutely, yes. Does that come by chance? Does that come by accident? Does that come because it just happened to grow out of nothing? Do we write encyclopedias out of nothing? Or are they, no, seriously, are, are, they, are they compiled meticulously to create something that's logical and sequential? That's, that's what you're saying about DNA. Yeah, and it's, it's not scientifically plausible, and yet this is the corner that atheistic scientists have backed themselves into. They have to take that position because they have already ruled out an intelligent source of that information. So, and I got to get back to that intelligent source of that information in a few minutes. Let's go to something besides DNA, okay? That we could spend the entire podcast just talking about the, and I'll, I'll, I'll coin, I'll, I'll use the phrase, the miracle of DNA, the amazing uh, ability of DNA to store and to, to execute, to store information and to execute things within, within biology. Let's get into a couple of other things. And, and Jonathan, we were talking before the, the, the podcast. These next two things are just amazing little pieces of information about what goes on inside your body every day.
Amen. So next we're going to take a look at, well, we're not going to take a look at, but we're going to listen to uh, a soundbite talking about the flagellum. This is a this is nanotechnology in cells. This is the flagellum. This is from Video Revolutionary, folks. You list, list, just just listen to this. And again, the question you have to ask yourself: Is there intelligence behind this, or is this just a random act from nothingness? Perhaps the most amazing propulsion system on our entire planet is one that exists in bacteria. It's called the flagellum, a miniature propeller driven by a motor with many distinct mechanical parts, each made of proteins. The flagellum's motor resembles a human-designed rotary engine. It has a universal joint, bushings, a stator, and a rotor. It has a drive shaft and even its own clutch and braking system. In some bacteria, the flagellar motor has been clocked at 100,000 revolutions per minute. The motor is bi-directional and can shift from forward to reverse almost instantaneously. Some scientists suggest it operates a near 100% energy efficiency. Okay, so it looks like a motor, it acts like a motor, it's more efficient than a motor, and it's so tiny you can't even see it, and it's about 100% energy efficient. Is it it amazing what chance can do? (laughs) Well, you know, it's amazing the, 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 the building blocks that are on such a... And this is inside of bacteria. I mean... When you talk about something as minuscule and complex inside of bacteria, the question is, could this possibly come about by chance or was it designed? I don't know. When we design motors and we know we designed the car with the drive shaft and the bushings and the bearings and all of that, you know, we think we're really smart. The bacteria is smarter than we are. (laughs) Well, here's some of the challenges that evolutionists have. Now, we're moving from uh, simply atheist to evolutionist. Mm -hmm. Uh, in trying to describe how this came. Now, the Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection says that evolution proceeds by small variations acted upon uh, by chance to select them out. It does not proceed with any plan. It has no plan, no foresight. It just acts on what's there. Now, when you look at the flagellum, which which looks very, very much like a modern-day motor, it's astonishing how close it is. And it is a motor. Uh, but it looks like modern designs. In order to uh, produce this, the DNA not only has to make the parts, but it has to have an assembly plan. You know, I worked in manufacturing, and Mm -hmm. you did too. And when you produce things, you have them go through the manufacturing cycle. Uh, Operator A does this, operator B does this, and then all the way through. The DNA has the assembly instructions as well as making the parts. This certainly sounds like foresight. And that's exactly the thing that uh, evolutionists do not admit or will not or cannot admit with evolution. So the existence of this precise motor, this incredibly efficient thing, is such a challenge. If we just look at it objectively and we say, this has to have someone who designed this. 
This was designed. You know, it's not hard to say, but for some it's hard to believe. Let's go to something else now. And, and, and as, as amazing as the flagellum is, which is inside of bacteria, remember, let's go to the kinesin. I admittedly had never heard of a kinesin before getting ready for this podcast. Let's go to a soundbite video revolutionary, and, and basically it's uh, meet the kinesin. Meet the kinesin. Masterpieces of microengineering, kinesins are miniature motorized machines that carry cargo from one part of the cell to another, walking along self-assembling highways called microtubules. Known as the workhorses of the cell, kinesins have two feet, or globular heads, that literally walk one foot over another, pulling their cargo to its destination. Each foot possesses two special locations, called binding sites, that interact with other molecules. One site attaches to the microtubule, and the other binds with ATP, the energy molecule of the cell. When one foot binds with ATP and uses its energy, the foot flips over, resulting in the walking motion. Each foot has a short neck, which is connected to a strand of a long coiled stalk. At the end of the stalk is a fan-shaped tail, which holds tightly to the cargo being transported. Kinesins can carry cargo that are many times their own size. Okay, so we've got this kinesin, which walks along a self-building highway inside of your cells. And yes, we said it walks, literally one foot in front of the other. Yeah, we... Uh... We looked at a, uh, a video. There's several videos on the web, and again, we recommend our listeners go and take a look at this themselves because the the audio description just d doesn't meet all of the beauty and, and astonishment and awesomeness of actually seeing uh, an illustration and animation of it. But it literally walks. There's a foot that lays down. It has an attachment for a, a certain amount of time. The other foot goes out in front. Then the first foot loses its energy and flips up and just naturally goes to the, the next one. And the highway it's walking along creates itself that's, that's right. as it's your, going. To the direction. And this is happening inside of yourself. <laughs> that's right. Again, going back to the illustration of a factory. You know, when I worked in a factory, we had what we called move people, transport people. And you would have to transport materials from one end of the factory to the other. You'd have to transport the raw materials that created whatever it is that you were manufacturing. Then you would have to translate, take that to the packing and then to the other parts of it. The cell works the same way. It's like a, it's like a little city, a little manufacturing plant. But to see this kinesin in operation, and we have it in our own bodies. These, are, these exist, these little tiny machines, is awesome. And once again, when you look at it, it is not intuitive at all to say, oh, this came about by accident. It's so counterintuitive. It seems so uh, obviously and awesomely planned and designed. And so, and, and folks, again, the point of all of this is to look at things that are in microbiology and say, look at the order, look at the design, look at the objective of these things, see how they operate and see how clearly they function with all of their moving parts on this cellular level and ask yourself the question, could this have just randomly happened to be cause or was it designed? So look, the incomprehensible complexity that drives the unseen world of microbiology is nothing short of amazing. Intelligent abounds in the heavens and in the minuscule. 
What about everything else in between? It's not Rick and Jonathan's style to talk about themselves, so I'm going to do it. Your Christian Questions random male voice guy. Let's play Did You Know? Both your hosts have full-time day jobs and put a ton of time into this podcast as volunteers. They're also both volunteer pastors in their church, and they're longtime husbands and dads. So safe to say they're pretty busy, but they love having weekly discussions with our listeners. So make sure to reach out to us at ChristianQuestions.com with your questions or suggested topics. Now, let's take our discussion to the next level. Now that we have seen and appreciated both ends of the creative spectrum, Let's now plant ourselves right in the middle. What we will find is no surprise because the complexity, order, and intelligence seen in the extremes certainly dwells in everything else. We are, as the Bible says, fearfully and wonderfully made. So now as we go into our next step with us today is our special guest, David Stein. Uh, He is here to talk with us about science and its proof that there is intelligent design behind it. We've looked at the universe, the big, big, big picture of the universe, and looked at some numbers and, and, and elements of the universe that, that just spill out the need for order and clarity and design. We've looked at microbiology and seen the incredible complexity in the smallest of things that demand a recognition of design. And so we're going to now take a look in the middle. We've, we've gone to the very big, we've gone to the very little, and now, David, we're going to go right in the middle. Let's start with the example of the, uh, the, the monarch butterfly. Well, you're right. We've gone from very large to very small to something in the middle. Well, what's so special about the monarch butterfly? It's one of many species of butterfly, but it is a unique species. Number one, it distinguishes itself uh, from other butterflies by the fact that it lives longer, Number two, it travels farther. Number three, has a wider distribution over the earth than any other butterfly. And there are things about this butterfly that really have scientists scratching their head trying to figure out how such an insect could come into existence. Okay. So tell us a little bit of the story of the monarch butterfly. Well, like other butterflies, it starts out with an egg, and uh, the egg hatches into a caterpillar or larva. And then the caterpillar creates a chrysalis and emerges as a a butterfly. Now, what's interesting is that this is a complete change of body plan. Uh, Obviously, you would look at a caterpillar and you look at a butterfly and you'd say there's nothing at all similar about them. It's hard to believe that they're of the same species. But this is exactly what happens. Now, what's interesting about the, the monarch is that it travels all the way down to Mexico as part of its life cycle. Let me go through the whole migration that uh, I think the listeners will find interesting. The monarch butterfly starts, it, it, le- it lives for about two to four weeks, during which time it feeds and breeds and dies during the summer. These are the butterflies that we see Well, we're up in Connecticut here or Pennsylvania. This is the monarch generation we're talking about. The last generation born in August, either the fourth or the fifth generation, Then, instead of dying in two to four weeks, it lives for nine months. Okay, so the fourth or fifth generation has this incredible length of life. Yeah, it's a completely different lifespan than than the generations that went before. In fact, they call it the Methuselah generation. And it's this generation now that flies for thousands of miles to its wintering location in the neovolcanic mountains of Mexico, about 3,000 miles. Hard to believe that the butterfly could travel somewhere. 
And then these butterflies cluster in trees at an altitude of 9,000 to 11,000 feet for about four months. In freezing temperatures, many of them. So they go, they go south. They go south. And they freeze. Right. Well, <laughs> almost freeze. They, okay. they survive the freezing, though. I mean, they're there from November to March through the winter. But that wintering period is, is really a time for them to hibernate, and they conserve this energy. And during this time, they eat and drink very, li uh, very little. Uh, and this late enables some of them to leave even longer than that. But now in the spring, they start to march forward. They start to migrate from Mexico, Mexico northeastward to the United States. Some go in some other directions. They return long distances to where they were born. How do they know that, I wonder? Sometimes they fly only a part of the distance to Texas and the lower states and then reproduce, and then the next generation moves on a little bit further, and then the next generation a little bit further until they get back to as far north as Ontario, Canada. And again, the last generation does not develop its reproductive organs before it begins its autumn migration to Mexico, which is very interesting. So these others, they reproduce, they reproduce, then they get to the their summer uh, grounds and they reproduce some more. But that Methuselah generation is immature in terms of reproduction, and that's the one that flies all the way down and lives for sometimes up to nine months. So, so you, you've got an amazing story of something in nature that just doesn't... Uh, how does a butterfly fly 3,000 miles and then go back to where it was born? How does a butterfly know that? Yeah, that, that's in, the incredible thing about it, that it has information that is part of its reproductive makeup, part of its genetic makeup. It knows. How does it know it had to be programmed in there somewhere? So we've got on, on the monarch butterflies really two things. The, the common thing of all butterflies, that metamorphosis from a caterpillar into a butterfly, you know, which is amazing. I think we were talking about it earlier that all of the internal organs of the caterpillar dissolve and then reassemble themselves into a butterfly. So it recycles everything. Very it's, efficient. So, so again, you got to ask yourself: Does this happen by pure chance, or does this happen because there is a design behind it? And folks, look, we're not even suggesting the idea of God at this point. What we're suggesting is that science and biology and nature all tell us the same thing. Yeah, and Rick, I'm so glad that you said that. We're not, we're not bringing God into it at this point. We're saying, here are the facts. Now, from a scientific standpoint, what can we develop to explain these facts? Now, you've got two choices. Either it all came up about by accident, by sheer chance, and that is really, really hard to, to, uh, to, to solve or to prove. Or we can say that there was a designing, a designer that went into this that made it happen. Yeah, and you know, and and I, we are not going to get political on this, so I'm just going to use this as an example, David. But you know, folks, there are there are two sides to the issue when people talk about the idea of climate change, and oftentimes the phrase "science denier" is thrown out from one side, looking at the other side. And I would take that phrase and say, are we denying what science is telling us? by not allowing intelligence to be behind these amazingly incredible, incredible things that we've been talking about. Yeah. And Rick, if I can add, just add one more thing. Uh, we heard uh, an audio clip from uh, Stephen Meyer. Stephen Meyer has written several books defending intelligent design. But one of the things that he says repeatedly, which is important, is that the scientific theory of intelligent design does not invoke God. 
what it says is that a clear and unbiased look at the facts suggests an intelligent designer. Most of them believe it's God, as we do too, and we're not trying to hide anything. But we're trying to keep it in the realm of science to say that this is a scientific deduction based upon our everyday experience and the way we see things happen everywhere else today. So, you know, when you when you see a car drive by, you don't think, oh, look what randomly popped out of the ground one day or over a period of time. You know that, hey, that's a Ford or that's a Chevy or that's a Subaru or whatever it is. You know, you can trace back to its design and its building. Why don't we do the same with things that are far more complex? And, 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 and Dave, let's just, this, let's diverge before we get to the human aspect of things. Let me diverge to the question I've been saying we're going to get back to. The idea of God. Okay. The idea of God is scientifically, uh, irreprehensible in some, in some cases. Okay. Because one of the responses often is, okay, wise guy. So you say God created the universe and all of these things. So where did your God come from? <laughs> How would you respond to that? Well, let's go back to our, our original a start of the program. We asked, where did the universe come from? And we concluded that since nothing comes from nothing, that there had to be a first cause that was outside of the universe, both in t- terms of its space and time. So even the idea of beginning here is a little hard. What happened before the universe began? Well, from a scientific standpoint, we say there was no time because there was no universe. So the, the question doesn't really have any meaning. Well, we say the same thing with God. God is outside of the universe. Therefore, he's outside of space-time. Therefore, he's outside of time. Just so to ask the question, well, where did God come from or how did he come? It's just the same thing as saying, well, where did this first cause come from? It's timeless, and there's no answer to it, but it's the same thing, that there still has to be an existence of this first cause, whether you want to call it God or something else. So it is outside of the rules of science because this cause instituted those rules. It's yeah, that, that, bigger than the rules. That's right. You know, we can, we can sort of imagine if, if there's no space, you know, three-dimensional space, we can wrap our minds around it. It's much harder for us to wrap our minds around the, the, the statement there is no time. How do you explain that? I don't know. That? Yeah, that, that. I'm, I'm driven by the clock. Everybody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> but you see the dilemma there. But it's the same dilemma that science would have. So the, 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 that question is sometimes presented, oh, here, I'm going to break their back with this question, but it doesn't really. Right. So, and that's just an interesting sidelight. Okay. So, David, just very quickly, humans, human beings as a privileged species, just a few comments on that. And then I want you to jump down to just, again, looking at nature, the thermal properties of water. Okay. One of the things that we observed and have observed is that the universe seems to be uh, especially uh, made and designed for human life. When we talked about the physical constants, all those constants are so finely tuned, and if they weren't, we couldn't have human life. So the common sense, as Fred Hoyle says, uh, the conclusion is somebody's muckied with the physics to make that happen. Well, as we look at the universe and we see how specifically designed and fitted it is for human life, uh, we become astonished. You know, for example, water. Water is is 75% of our planet. But one of the most important and interesting qualities of water is the fact that when you cool it, it expands. And let's think for a moment about what the, the implications of that are. Let's say, like most other things, water 
uh, shrank when it got smaller. And you know that that's true. A piece of metal that gets shorter shrank when it when, it, when it's cooler. When it's yeah. cooler. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Did I say warmer? Sorry, when, warmer. No, when it got smaller, you said. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So smaller. It's like, well, of course, right. it shrinks when it gets smaller. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's right. Cooling it down makes the atoms come closer together, and so they get smaller in size. If that was true of water. Then what would happen every winter? Well, the ice would get smaller, and it would get more denser, and it would sink to the bottom of the lake. Now, at the bottom of the lake, it's going to be quite a bit distance from where the sun and the warming air is and whatnot, so it would probably stay frozen as it gets down there. The next winter, you would have that same process repeated. It would fall, fill the lake, and after so many iterations, you'd have a permanently frozen lake. However, water doesn't act that way. Water expands. It gets lighter. It gets and, less dense. And that's contrary to most other things. Almost every other cool. liquid behaves the way that we described earlier. Gets gets smaller in size and more dense. Water gets less dense. That means it floats. That's why an iceberg floats. That's why the, the ice in your soda comes to the top. And what that permits then is that you don't fall into that permanently frozen situation on the planet Earth. That would have just not permitted life to live at all. So something as simple as the properties of water being contrary to the properties of most other liquids yep. in terms of heat and cooling. Yeah, and let's take that a little bit further, that uh, you have a natural cycle on the Earth where you have uh, lava and a crust that comes up that's pushed up by tectonic plates into mountains, and those mountains start to dissolve and break down. The freezing of water at the higher temperature helps that break down. And when those rocks break down, they free up all kinds of nutrients and uh, minerals that plants need in order to grow. So that freezing cycle of water, as well as the ability of water to dissolve almost anything, is part of the continually refreshing of the earth for life, and I will add for human life. So again, chance? Or design. Those are the. That's the question that we have to continually come back to every single item that we talk about because science screams that there is an incredibly intricate, wonderful, powerful, clear design. Why do we think that we need to look at it and, and deny that it exists? Let's add it all up. The universe, microbiology, and the world around us all reveal intelligent design. The elements of our world are telling the glory of God. So what about the air that we breathe? We're uncovering the truth scripture by scripture while gathering information from across today's media landscape with our vast CQ team of contributors. We want to hear from you, our listeners, for more contribution to our conversations. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com or message us through the Christian Questions app and our producers may read your comments over the air. Let's continue working through our topic with all our tools. We're reviewing the evidence. Now let's put it together. Let's again ask the question, does science prove intelligent design? Hopefully by now we've all been given a real taste of what mighty, bigger than universal power and wisdom was behind all of these things. Now let's talk about something as basic as the air that we breathe. How precise is the air that we breathe? I mean, we talked about the water that, that we drink that sustains life on Earth. What about the air? With us today is David Stein, our very, very good friend and special guest, to talk to us about science 
and the intelligence behind the design of the things that, frankly, we never even take the time to think about. So, David, a little bit about oxygen. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is so beautiful. Again, we relate this back to the behavior of the physical constants. They are tuned and they are, are set up in such a way as to permit life. The element of oxygen also is finely tuned for love, life. It is a source of energy through the slow combustion with hydrocarbons, the only way for energy that's needed for life. You know, when you breathe in each day or each moment, the oxygen you're bringing into your lungs is distributed through uh, your blood system to the cells everywhere. And those cells have those little kinesins that are <laughs> dragging things across and the little flagellums in the bacteria that's inside your body. That's all still all working because the oxygen's feeding it all. Yeah, well, Just wanted they, to throw that in. Yeah, they, they are benefits too uh, of everything that lives within us, to be sure. But it's where you get your energy from. And notice we use the expression slow combustion. You know, you can, we have a fireplace at home and we, we put our wood into it to heat our house. You can see that uh, the oxidation of the wood produces flames and produces warmth. Well, that happens on a very, very slow scale in our bodies. That's why you're warm, because of the, uh, the oxygen use. Now, you're only going to have oxygen available on planets the size of the Earth. If your planet is too big, the atmosphere will contain too much hydrogen and helium. Like, for example, Jupiter. Jupiter is a gas giant. It doesn't even have a surface. Uh, it, you can't have oxygen on that because the, the predominance of these methane and other hydrogen and, and uh, hydrophobic, not hydrophobic, but hydrogen molecules. If you have a planet that's too small, there's not enough gravity to retain oxygen. For example, Mars. You know, sometimes folks have have ideas of maybe settling on Mars sometime in the future, but one of the challenges is going to be to be able to retain oxygen in the atmosphere. It just doesn't have enough uh, enough gravity there. So the size of the Earth fits in with the requirements of oxygen. Now, where do we get the oxygen from? Well, every, I think most school children know the answer to that. Plants produce it using photosynthesis. They convert the radiant energy from the sun and produce oxygen as a as a waste byproduct. As a, wait, wait, as a waste byproduct? Yeah, for a plant, that's right. It's an output, not an input. Okay. <laughs> Again, it seems to work pretty well, doesn't it? Yeah. Least, if you like your vegetables. Well, you know what? If you like to breathe, <laughs> you know, this waste byproduct is a pretty intelligent design to supply everything else, just saying. Indeed, indeed. Well, let's think about the plants that produce the oxygen through photosynthesis. They need radiation from the sun. And you know, gee, what a surprise. Our sun produces just the right radiation in the visual, visual, visual region in order for plants to do their photosynthesis. Our sun turns out nearly all of its energy in the spectrum that we just happen to need in order for oxygen to be produced. But that's all by chance? Another coincidence, huh? Now, it goes even further than that. The atmosphere has just the right combination, or right composition, excuse me, to allow the spectrum of electromagnetic energy through to the surface of the planet. If we had different types or different mixtures of, uh, of atmospheric gases, then not all of the radiation would get through. But this is it's virtually transparent to what the plants need. Now, here's another thing. How much oxygen is there available to us? Well, there's about 250 milliliters of oxygen that a person needs per minute. Now, how much oxygen that we can breathe in depends upon the pressure within our atmosphere. 
Rick, if you and I traveled up to the top of Mount Everest, guess what we would need? Yeah, we'd need oxygen. <laughs> we'd, we'd have to carry a bottle with us because even though there's oxygen up there, the lower pressure would not allow us to get enough into our bodies. And so on the Earth, at sea level and in all of our inhabitable zones, we have just the right amount of pressure of oxygen to make breathing uh, easy without, without particularly struggling with it. Now, let's consider one other thing. We've got 20% of our atmosphere is, oxy is oxygen, about 79% is uh, uh, nitrogen. Think about 1, 1.5% 1 is carbon dioxide, if I remember correctly. If there was too much oxygen in our atmosphere, let's say above 30%, guess what problem you would have? Don't know. Well, if you lit a fire, it would just explode into a very, very heavy fire. Oh, okay, yeah, the, the amount yeah. of oxygen. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, we hear sometimes about tragedies uh, uh, of fires where, where folks in a, in a hospital are in an right. oxygen tank. Right. The reason it's so bad is because they have a greater than 30% oxygen that they need to live, but it's also very dangerous. Mm -hmm. So it just so happens that uh, we can have fire in this earth because of the right amount of oxygen. And guess what? If you didn't have fire, we wouldn't have technology. We could not have technology that we have without fire. So it goes, it's so simple, and it goes back to some of the most basic things in life, and we need to realize that these simple, basic things in life are all connected in a monumental way with things that we don't even think about, the plants uh, waste byproduct is the oxygen that we need, and there's just the right amount for life to sustain itself. Folks, ask the question, is that intelligently designed, or did, did it happen purely by chance? Okay, David, um, just very, very quickly, human beings... Their differences, just rattle off for me. Some of the difference between human beings and the rest of the intelligent, intelligently created things on this earth. Well, this little list, I'm going to give a few things, features unique to humans is important because part of the materialistic uh, scientific philosophy says that human beings are just like any other animal. There's nothing special about us. We're just the, the latest version of what evolution can, can produce. Right. And we find it demeaning, you know, as well as immoral, because we see human beings as made in the image of God. Now, this is a spiritual. This is not scientific. This is spiritual. But I want to contrast that view with the view of the evolutionists and atheists. Okay. So how are human beings different from other animals? Well, no other animal has the mathematical proudness of a human brain, of a human being. Our brains seem to be wired to understand these advanced and abstract conce uh, concepts. Our human voice, I mean, we're doing a podcast today. What other animals have the range of sound and the particular way in which we can articulate sounds the way a human voice can? Hmm. A human voice is not only beautifully fit for speech and for communication, but for beauty as well. You hear the voice of an opera star, the range, can bring tears to our eyes. This is all part of the human voice, unlike that of any other animal in the world. The human hand... The human hand is uniquely adapted with opposing thumbs to manipulate our environment, to create things, and to do things. Um, the location of our planet Earth, where human beings live in the galaxy, enables us to see our environment, our space environment, our universe environment. If we were closer to the center of the Milky Way, uh, we would be have so much gas around us that you couldn't see outside 
of the galaxy. So hmm. human beings would never be able to know the extent of the universe. They could never see outside that. But we're pretty far out on the pinwheel, and we have a clear view to galaxies elsewhere and going back past that, and much of cosmology is based upon what we're able to both see and to see with radio telescopes. Humans, Rick, are indeed a privileged species. We live on a privileged planet. There is a uniqueness that we could make many more lists than what we've enumerated here today. And so we have to conclude that the universe is uniquely fitted for human life. So, and, and again, you went through those very, very, very quickly, but if we were to take time on them and, and, and unfold them, it really is a, an amazing journey to realize all of the things that we have going for us uh, as human beings on this planet Earth. So, all right, so David, l- let's begin the recap. Now, there's a lot of things to recap here. So let's just start and, and just rattle off some things that, that you think... Uh, just help to put this all together because, again, the main question is does science prove intelligent design? Take God out of the picture. I know we've mentioned God here and there, but we've tried really hard to focus on science and intelligent design behind it. So give us some some recap points. Well, Rick, what I did is I put together a a list of 11 things that came out of our, our, our study and our discussion this morning. And these are all related. They're either scientific facts or strong scientific implication, conclusions that we've made from scientific evidence. So here's kind of just an overview of what we've spoken about this evening. Number one, science now accepts that the universe had a beginning. Remember, we talked about the Big Bang. Right. This is scientific fact. And if it had a beginning, then it had a first cause. And if if they had that first cause, when we see the incredible complexity of it, You look at it and say, wow, there's got to be intelligence there. Right, right. Number two, it is logical that the universe came into existence from a timeless, spaceless, immaterial cause of immense power. That's scientifically accurate. Again, we kind of tickled it a little bit early on. We said, well, what does that sound like? It sounds like God, Well, that's the way we interpret it, yes. (laughs) Yes, but that is scientifically accurate and scientifically precise. Number three, belief in an intelligent creator who brought the universe into existence, is in agreement with the facts of cosmology. Now, that's scientifically accurate. Now, somebody might say, well, that doesn't prove that God. Well, okay, well, all we're saying here now is that what we believe is not, uh, not out of harmony with what science has shown us. Okay, and, and you know, again, uh, well, okay, go, go to the next point, and then I'll, I'll get Okay, into. number four, postulating that the universe came into being from nothing is based upon no science at all. See, and that's important because if we want to be scientifically accurate, the you don't have science that can support the idea of something comes from nothing. So you ha- when you back up from that, there is no science to prove such a thing. People can say, well, you know, you can't prove the existence of God, and you can't prove the existence of something from nothing. It's not provable by science, and that's within the context of the universe. We're talking about God as being outside of the context of the universe. Exactly. Go ahead. Number five, the existence of dozens of universal physical constants that are precise to an almost inconceivable degree testify to a fine-tuned universe. Physical constants, and you said there were like 60 of those 
that are out there, and they are so incredibly precise, it boggles the mind to even try to begin to open the door to think about them. Right, right. Number six, the alternative atheistic explanation of the of these fine-tuned constants is the existence of the multiverse. That is, that there are an infinite number of universes. Yeah, and I've actually seen some science fiction movies that kind of go down that road. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they like that idea. But here's the point, and an important point. That's philosophy. There is absolutely no scientific evidence for it, nor can that be, because we can't see other universes, if they ex even existed, from our universe. Okay. Number seven, atheistic scientific materialism currently has no explanation of how life began. I say currently, that's, that's you know, kind of a, a condescension to scientists. But there is not a clue, and those that understand the matter will admit that. Okay. Number eight, speculating that the necessary chemistry of life came together by chance is improbable to the point of impossibility. And this is saying that the DNA molecule came into existence just, just through random assembly uh, before life began. Yeah, and, and if you just even look at just a DNA molecule and do the math to try to figure out what it would take for it to randomly come about, you'd come up with numbers so large that you would just give up. Yeah. Because yeah. it just can't be random. Yeah, just a little footnote to that. They, they, if you talk to scientists, mathematicians that deal with probability, there is a point of probability that is so low that it is, for all practical purposes, impossible. So if somebody, we use that term 1 to 10 to the 37th, uh, you know, somebody might say, well, there is this one chance, 1 mm -hmm. to 10 to the 37th. Yeah, there is. That's a mathematical chance, but it's not a practical chance. Right, and you take that one, and then you put it against the other 70, 80, 90, 100 things that you talked about, it, and add them up, and you get out, out, of the, out, of, out of practicality long, 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 long ago. It, the reality the is that sailed. it's totally impossible. Yes. That's right. Go ahead. All right, number nine. The most reasonable conclusion from the apparent design of microscopic structures and machines is that they were designed by an intelligent source. Absolutely. Those things are incredible to look at. <laughs> number ten. The design and behavior of many forms of life cannot be explained by, by chance. We talked about the monarch butterfly. We could have talked about the sea turtle. We could have talked about the whale. Many, many other creatures. The, uh, uh, the, the, uh, I'm trying to remember the bug that produces a flamethrower. You know, there, <laughs> there, there are so, so many creatures that are just incredible. To say that these could have come about by chance is ridiculous. And finally, number 11. There are numerous characteristics of the universe that justify the belief that our universe is specially fit for human life. Okay, David, your final, final words in about 20 seconds. 20 seconds. Well, <laughs> for, for, from my standpoint, from looking at scientific evidence, I find nothing in science that rules out the existence of God. I find many things in science. The evidence of science seems to me to be overwhelming to argue for an intelligent creator. David, thanks so much for being with us. Really, really appreciate your, your work, your dedication, and your ability to explain it all. Thanks for very much for the invitation. Folks, listen. Take a look. Take a listen. Go back through. Check the notes. See what you can see here. And be honest about science. Be honest about what it's telling us. Be honest about the miracles in science, the miracles in the bigness of the universe, and the smallness in those little flagellum that are just these little motors that work inside of bacteria. Understand, there's a design. We are blessed to be able to see 
and acknowledge that. For Jonathan, Rick, and David, we appreciate your being with us, and we hope you've enjoyed being with us as we have talked to you about how science, we believe, shows us the existence of a creator. Folks, listen, we want to hear from you. Give us your feedback. Send us your questions on this episode or other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Spread the word on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Next week, is this the moment you were created for? Part two, the life of Esther. We'll talk to you then. <laughs>